Well, the great thing about having type written uh, this morning's sermon uh, is that I had the opportunity to increase the font this morning before I printed it. Um, we're on page uh, 1,149 uh, in the church Bibles, um, and it will help if you've got that open in front of you. And uh, while you turn back there, why don't we pray again? Uh, Heavenly Father, we do ask that your words to us this morning would be a lamp to our feet and a light for our paths. We pray that they would help us to see the Lord Jesus more clearly, to love him more dearly, and to follow him more nearly. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, and whatever this week might bring for us, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, there might be one or two of you who can't quite cast your minds back to December the 2nd, 2010. Uh, but for those of you who can, what were you doing on December the 2nd? 2010, 12 years ago. I wonder how many of us actually remember what we were doing on that day. I did a quick Google search. It doesn't seem that there was anything particular that happened. I know I was at theological college in my last year. I can't tell you much more than that. However, I can remember being rather bemused by an announcement on the news that day that the 2022 Football World Cup would be held in a place called Qatar, a nation not exactly renowned for its association with football, uh, nor for a particularly uh, good climate for playing the game. Well, 12 years on, and despite corruption scandals and controversy, today, the 22nd FIFA World Cup Football World Cup is about to, men's Football World Cup is about to get underway. It's been 12 years in the making and it's finally here. Uh, lives have been cost, reputations have been hindered, uh, people have lost reputations over it. Others have benefited and prospered from it. And now that it is here, uh, we'll all do very well to avoid the noise around it, whatever our view of football. Oh, well, as we turn to 1 Corinthians uh, 7 again this morning for the fourth time, uh, the fourth and final in our series, latest series, working through uh, this letter to 1 Corinthians, we'll be returning to chapter 8 uh, in due course. But as we turn back to chapter 7, the Apostle Paul wants to remind us that there's a day approaching that we need to be ready for. It's a day that sadly many are indifferent to, uh, others aren't even aware of it, and unlike today and the start of the World Cup, it's a day that can't specifically be pinned down. Twelve years ago, we were told that the 21st of November, and it's actually the 20th, uh, but the 21st of November would be 
the start of the Qatar World Cup. This day hasn't got a specific date, but it is in the diary. It is a day that is coming. It's a day that has and will cost lives and reputations, but it's also a day that will bring benefit and blessing. And when it comes, the noise around it will be unavoidable, whatever your view of it. Cast your eyes down to verse 29. What I mean, brothers and sisters, writes Paul, is that the time is short. From now on, those who have wives should live as if they do not. Those who mourn as if they did not. Those who are happy as if they were not. Those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep. Those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them. For this world in its present form, is passing away. There's an urgency, isn't there, in what Paul writes. A need for focus, for readiness. And the reason is, ultimately, Jesus has promised to come back one day. The bridegroom. Coming to be finally and fully united to his bride, the church, forever. It's a day that history will be wrapped up, justice will be done and seen to be done, and those who belong to the Lord Jesus Christ will join him in his heavenly home and eternal kingdom forever. And the question for us this morning is how much is that day determining our lives and priorities? As we've worked through chapters 5, 6, and 7 of 1 Corinthians over the last few months, we've been seeing, haven't we, what it means to be part of the church, Jesus' bride. Uh, What it means for us collectively in terms of how we operate as Jesus followers together in church, but also what it means for us individually in terms of the way that we behave in our relationships and the kind of relationships uh, we can have. In chapter 7, the focus seems to have been on those preoccupied with a spiritual, the grass is greener somewhere else syndrome. People who were saying, in effect, I'd be such a better Christian if I weren't married anymore. Uh, Or others who were actually saying, actually, no, I'd be such a better Christian if I were married. And as we've seen over the weeks, the Apostle Paul is at pains to say that is simply not true. Both singleness and marriage are good gifts from a good God. Both have their challenges and both have their benefits. As we've seen, uh, as we see in verse uh, 17, Paul's advice is each person should live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord's assigned them to. 
And as we come to the end of chapter 7, Paul wants to help us see marriage and singleness in the context of Jesus' return. Uh, Verse 25, uh, he reminds us again, as he did in verse 12, and as he'll do again in verse 40, uh, that in addressing some of these issues, he speaks as a trustworthy servant of the Lord Jesus. He's an apostle. Uh, He's been specifically chosen and appointed by Jesus to prepare people for meeting Jesus, for being part of Jesus' bride on that great day. And so even though he doesn't quote Jesus specifically and he doesn't have uh, specific words that come from the lips of Jesus for the particular pastoral situations that he's dealing with here, he is speaking with the wisdom and authority that comes from being an apostle. Uh, So they're not words that we can dismiss. Uh, But he does say, doesn't he, I think, I give a judgment. Uh, He's giving advice. And his underlying message, as we've seen, is live as a believer in whatever situation the Lord has assigned to you. Are you married? Good. Don't look for a divorce. Are you single? That's also good. If you're married, sex is a good thing. If you're not married, well, celibacy is a good thing. But as we get to verse 26, Paul makes reference to the present crisis and his reason for his preference for singleness. Uh, which is the focus of our passage this morning. Now, what the present crisis was, uh, we're not sure. Uh, We are left to speculating. Uh, Clearly, it was uh, known by the Corinthians. They completely understood uh, what he was going on about. Uh, But we don't. Uh, Some think it could have been an increase in persecution against Christians. Uh, Nero was around... Uh, Emperor Nero uh, was around uh, ruling around about the time that this was written, so that is quite a plausible explanation. Uh, Life getting tougher uh, for Christians. Uh, Was there a significant economic uncertainty going on uh, in that part of the world? Uh, Well, again, there's reports of a famine uh, across uh, parts of Europe uh, during this time, around about the time that 1 Corinthians was written, so again, that could possibly uh, be a reasonable explanation. But whatever was going on, verses 29 to 31 serve as something of a rallying cry, don't they? Uh, This week, I spent a couple of days meeting uh, army chaplains and having a tour of the barracks at MOD Stafford. During the visit, I met soldiers uh, going through various drills and undertaking tasks, ultimately to prepare them for war. Uh, Their focus, as soldiers, is to be primed and ready to confront and defeat the king's enemies should war arise. 
Well, whatever the situation going on here in Corinth, it's as if Paul is writing to them as a commanding officer, reminding them of their primary responsibility, devotion to King Jesus. At verse 32, I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. His interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. That is Paul's aim. Whether we're married this morning, whether we're single this morning, the message for us is that Jesus is coming and we are to be ready And because Paul is so acutely aware that Jesus will return as our king, as our beautiful bridegroom, he wants us to be primed and ready. That's what matters most. And ultimately, we can be primed and ready as those who are married and as those who are single. Both, as we've seen, Uh, and needs reiterating, are good gifts from a good God. But for Paul, being single has significant advantages. And as we think about these verses briefly this morning, the challenge for us, both as individuals and collectively as a church family, is to both recognize and celebrate the opportunities that remaining single gives for devotion to King Jesus. Paul highlights two aspects of the blessing of singleness here. And if you're not single here this morning, well, do listen in, uh, even though uh, you may not be single at the moment, uh, because the likelihood is uh, that whether we, if we are married we may well become single again. Uh, unless Jesus does return uh, when, we're all, uh, when we're alive, uh, the likelihood is that one or other spouse will die before the other one uh, and singleness will happen again. Uh, so, uh, the blessings of singleness. Firstly, remaining single spares you from the troubles of the married, verses 28 to 31. And then secondly, we'll see, remaining single allows for wholehearted concern for the Lord's affairs, verses 32 to 35. And then uh, we'll just uh, have a few minutes on the last few verses at the end. Uh, Firstly, remaining single spares you the troubles of the married. Verse 28... Those who marry will face many troubles in this life, and I want to spare you this. Married life is a joy, but it's not easy. 
Uh, moving from a one-party autocracy to a two-party coalition is not without challenge or difficulty. Sacrifices and compromises are needed. Uh, how you spend your time, where you go, who you see, where you live, how you decorate. All of these things now involve a discussion before a decision. And sometimes it's a very long and losing discussion. The arrival of children has an even greater impact. And that's without there being a present crisis. Something like conflict, persecution, or economic strife. It's bad enough facing conflict or persecution or economic strife on your own. But how much more troubling is it when you've got a responsibility to care for others as well as yourself? Those who marry promise to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death us do part. Uh, Often, uh, when I've read those words to a couple standing in front of me uh, at a church, they're in the prime of health, uh, and they're looking forward to days of better and richer. But what about being prepared for those worst days, for those days of sickness or financial trouble? That's not what I signed up for, many will argue, when those days come. But they're wrong. That's exactly what they sign up to in making those vows. And for those of us married here today, or those in danger of idolizing marriage, we need a healthy dose of realism in this area. Those who marry will face many troubles in this life. Marriage isn't just about better, healthier, richer. It will involve worse, sickness, poorer, and likely death. And we need to be ready for that. And the tears and the challenges that that brings. Because until Jesus does return... We are going to face uh, mourning and crying. Uh, Married people will face trials and troubles. Uh, Things that single people will be spared a bit more of. Secondly, remaining single allows wholehearted concern for the Lord's affairs, verses 32 to 35. In a way that marriage... Uh, doesn't or struggles uh, to allow for. Uh, In verse 32, Paul cites a second reason for his preference for singleness, that you might be free from concern, uh, that you might please the Lord, that your interests may not be divided. Uh, Of course, it isn't a given. I can't honestly say that as an unmarried man, I lived a life of wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus. Such a life 
needs cultivated discipline. But being single does open up opportunities for service and devotion that are more challenging for those who are married. As Paul comments in these verses, a married man or woman has divided loyalties in a way that a single person doesn't. And the last couple of years, uh, personally, have brought that home to me uh, with all the jobs that I've looked at and applied for. I've been very conscious of what the impact would be on the family were I to get them. It would have been a whole different ball game had I been good at interviews um, or had I been on my own uh, and only had me to worry about. It's said that a happy wife makes for a happy life. Uh, And another saying is that a parent is only as happy as their unhappiest child. These are real-life concerns that married people and those who have children face, uh, pleasing their spouse, thinking about the family. And these things will have an impact on whether we can use annual leave for short-term service or helping out with a Christian summer camp, Uh, whether or not we can actually make the evening prayer meeting, or whether there are children to put to bed and things to do uh, for the wife and family, Uh, whether we can help out with a a Bible study group or, or go and assist at an evangelism course, It's not to say, of course, that married couples and families can't do these things. But it's far less complicated when there's only one of you to think about. Well, those are the two reasons that Paul gives for preferring singleness. It spares us real-life troubles that married people will face. Uh, And it allows for wholehearted devotion to the Lord's affairs that is more of a struggle uh, for those who are married. But it all seems, well, rather negative about marriage, doesn't it? Don't we need a bit more balance? What about the statistics that suggest marriage is a good thing, both for mental health and well-being? Uh, What about, uh, if we go back to the beginning of the Bible and the blessing of Eve to Adam, Uh, and how uh, Adam being alone in Genesis chapter 2 wasn't good? Well, there is a degree of truth in such objections. But I think what Paul is doing in these verses is providing us with the realism about marriage that we tend to overlook or dismiss. In fact, you could argue that Paul is wanting to bring more balance to our thoughts about marriage and singleness. Uh, That's exactly what he's doing here, giving us that balance. Because being married is challenging. Yes, it is a good gift from a good God. But let's not pretend it doesn't involve pain and heartbreak, trials and troubles, frustrations and worries. And as those who are married uh, and in our church family, we need to be honest about these things. But we need to share with those who aren't married, who can look in at our marriages uh, with rose-tinted spectacles and go, if only I were like them, I'd be a far better Christian 
Are we honest with the struggles that we face in our marriages? Yes, let's big up the joys as well. But let's be honest about the struggles. And yes, being single can be challenging too. But Paul's at pains to point out here that it is also a really good gift from a really good God. That Sam Albury uh, has helpfully written in his book, Seven Myths About Singleness, that you don't have to miss out on family life by being single. It doesn't mean you have to be alone. It doesn't mean not having deep, loving friendships. And as a church, we should be challenged this morning about whether we're modeling a loving family life together where all are loved and cared for, whether married or single. And as we've seen here, being single certainly doesn't mean not having a fulfilling ministry. Quite the opposite, in fact. Think about the wonderful opportunities for adventure and wholehearted devotion to the Lord Jesus that are open to single people that just simply aren't possible for those who are married. Well, as we uh, draw to a close, uh, it's worth reminding ourselves of verses 36 to 40, uh, where despite Paul's own personal preference for singleness, he does indeed remind us of the goodness of marriage. If anyone is worried that he might not be acting honorably towards the virgin he's engaged to, if his passions are too strong and he feels he ought to marry, he should do as he wants. He's not sinning. They should get married. Now, if you have a look at your Bibles, you'll see there's quite a big, chunky footnote uh, at the bottom of that page. There's some discussion about whether this verse was actually addressed to fathers who as those responsible for arranging their daughters' marriages back in those days might have been inclined to see singleness for their daughter as a better option. That's what the footnote is driving at. It could be. But either way, Paul's point is ultimately that marriage is a good gift from God. You do not sin by getting married. It's not sinful for a single man and a single woman to decide to get married. And it should be a cause for celebration. But as we've seen, as Paul points out then in verses 37 and 38, deciding not to get married is also a good thing and should also be celebrated. And I wonder if as a church family, we're as good at celebrating singleness as we are at celebrating marriage. I wonder if we get as excited about those who remain single in order to be able to serve the Lord Jesus as we do about those who get engaged and get married. Are we constantly on the lookout uh, for single friends uh, that we might be able to match them up with somebody? Or are we celebrating the freedom that they have as a single person to serve the Lord Jesus. Perhaps that's a particular challenge 
uh, to those of us who are parents. Well, verse 38 is something of a wake-up call, isn't it? He who marries a virgin does right, but he who does not marry her does better. Well, then finally, verse 39. Who a Christian widow can marry? A man who is also a Christian. It's an obvious principle. But actually, this little, or these couple of verses, bring us back to where we started. There's a day in the diary. Each day brings it closer. The time is getting shorter when Jesus will return. And above all else, the Apostle Paul, as the great bride man, he's not a maid, so he's not a bridesmaid, he's a bride man devoted to helping God's people be ready for that great wedding day when Jesus and his church, his perfect bride, us as Christians, will be united together. Paul is tasked with getting us ready for that day. And in order to be ready for that day, living lives of wholehearted devotion, of love, of service, of sacrifice, is what we're called to as Christians, whether we're married or single or unmarried. And because of that, If we are considering getting married, it doesn't make sense to choose a spouse who won't actively encourage us to live for the Lord Jesus. Because if we're going to get married, we're going to need all the encouragement and the support we can get for the trials that Paul has mentioned uh, that will come. And we'll need all the support and encouragement that we can get to keep our eyes on the price, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Why don't we bow our heads for a prayer? In a moment, we're going to join together and sing, O Jesus, I have promised to serve thee to the end. Be thou forever near me, my master and my friend. I shall not fear the battle if thou art by my side, nor wander from the pathway if thou wilt be my guide. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would graciously be by our side that you would be our guides, that you would lift our eyes from the joys and the trials and the struggles that we face in our day-to-day lives, where we so easily lose sight of the Lord Jesus. And that day when he will come as our beloved bridegroom and take us to be with him in thee happily ever after 
forever. Despite all our fallenness, despite all our sin and our frailties, despite all the times that we get things wrong, we thank you for his great love for us. And so we pray, Heavenly Father, that you would help us to see him more clearly, to love him more dearly, and to follow him more nearly every day of the rest of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.